Hello, welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, we talk to Aileen O'Carroll of the Workers' Solidarity Movement. Aileen first became politically active via student union and pro-choice politics and joined the anarchist WSM in the early 1990s and remains a member, having been involved in several prominent campaigns since then. She's a trade union activist and chaired the Maynooth branch of IFUT for three years and remains on the branch committee. As a sociologist, she has written a history of Dublin Dockers about working time in the software sector and she is a board member of the Four Day Week campaign. She currently works for the Digital Repository of Ireland and is a project lead on a Welcome Trust funded project, which is archiving material from the repeal campaign. We discuss Aileen's politicisation and path to anarchism and the Worker Solidarity Movement, her involvement in campaigns including water charges, abortion and the repeal referendum, Shelter Sea, Reclaim the Streets protests, and her role as the Dublin Grassroots Network media spokesperson for the 2004 May Day protests, which resulted in the first use of water cannon in the south of Ireland. We also discuss the approach of the WSM to organising, how it has developed, how it works with the broader left in campaigns, and Aileen's own view of the role of activism. Thanks to everyone who has been listening to the podcast. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, please do. Uh, we welcome your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via the website at leftarchive.ie. You can email us on contact at leftarchive.ie or find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. Thanks very much to Aileen for taking the time to talk to us and thank you for listening. Okay, well, first, Aileen, thank you very much for, for coming on. Uh, appreciate your time. So to begin with, can you tell us a bit about how you got involved in political activism and what your first experiences of campaigning were? Um, uh, I've been thinking about this. Um, uh, I think that probably the first political thing I did was when I was in primary school. And I, at the time, RTE used to have a programme called Woman's Hour after the, new, after the one o'clock news. And I happened to be home one day and they were looking for examples of sexism. So I wrote to them saying that in my primary school, the girls had to do sewing while the boys went out and played football. And that was read out. Um, and the school I went to, like a lot of, uh, I grew up in rural Ireland. It was a school that really believed in corporal punishment. So when it was read out, I was actually quite frightened that I was going to get hit because of it. Um, and I wasn't. The teacher just commented on, on it. Um, and I the reason I like I was at that age was I felt about that was really to do with both my parents we moved around a lot and then we moved to uh, Eskeaton County Limerick Mm. in the 80s when I was six or seven Uh, so we were blow-ins we didn't we never belonged um and my (laughs) yeah totally I was thinking getting a t-shirt saying blow-in you know (laughs) um which I think is you know now I think is good because it gives you an outside perspective on, on the world um, and my dad um, was extremely anti-clerical um, he'd been to a, a Christian brother a secondary school and he and he hated the church and um, he was a scientist so he was all for rationalism and against religion and my um, and his mother um, who was a primary school teacher I only discovered a couple of years ago <clears throat> was very active in the union arguing for um, equality for women so she was very catholic but she was a, a feminist you know so her sons when they brought the laundry home at the weekend would have been expected to do it themselves which was fairly unusual in the in the 50s and early yeah. 60s so he was a contrarian and he liked to argue um, and my mother also had a sort of an outsider strange childhood herself 
um, and was definitely a feminist. She was a physiotherapist and, and a writer. So it was a, it was a household where there was a lot of arguments at the table and a lot of feminist books around the house. So I would have read when I was into reading um, Kate Millett, uh, which I didn't really understand, and Betty Freeman and um, The Women's Room, which kind of blew my mind. Um, so a lot of these books that I didn't necessarily understand, but I definitely, you know, I had a feminist perspective. So then coming to a very conservative place, like a Skeeton that was very Catholic, um, being like an outsider I just I, I was comfortable in not making those arguments and then when I went to secondary school I would argue all the time and religion class I remember once the sister Frances saying to me maybe you'll be happier in another school you know and I kind of yeah and I mean I remember me thinking hmm, like what school you know I live in Limerick there aren't any big liberal schools um and then there was also the background of um, uh, you know, the Kerry Babies case was happening when I was a teenager and Limerick was next to Kerry. Um, there was um, Joanne Lovett. There was um, that woman, uh, Sheila Hodgson, who died um, it, because she couldn't get treatment because uh, they wouldn't give her an abortion. She, she had cancer. There was another school secretary who was fired and that was upheld because she got pregnant. So there was a lot of stuff going on there so that plus my sort of my mother's feminism I think gave me an introduction to politics the first group I ever oh and then of course it was the 80s you had Reagan you had Thatcher and Dr. Brian Hanley talks a lot about the miners strike and that definitely was influential yeah. my father worked in the local factory and he would have been in management so we argued a lot about Thatcher and um, would have the, the hunger strikes were on so I, I didn't really know what was going on in the north but I remember when Bobby Sands died they they blocked the bridge in Eskeaton and there was black flags anywhere. So if you wanted to go to the other half of the town, you had to take a six mile round, round trip. Um, so, and then there was nuclear war and there was Chernobyl. Um, so the first group I ever joined was CND. I sent away to join CND and they sent me back a membership card. I, we lived about a mile or two as a crow flies from Shannon Airport. Mm. So looking at all, you know, where nuclear bombs fit and feeling that it was, a, it could, was a potentially military target of something that I was worried about. I think anybody who grew up in the 80s with threads and everything yeah. uh, had this apocalyptic feeling about the world, which actually makes the coronavirus thing very comfortable, you know, because yeah. affected, you know, as teenagers, that was our childhood. And, and BBC TV dystopian television. Yeah, uh, threads, yeah. I remember threads having a huge impact yeah. on me, yeah, scaring me shitless, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I did not like, I was bullied in school. I didn't like Limerick. I hated living in a rural life. I just had a sense there was a world out there somewhere that I had to get to. You know, you had, you know, I was listening to music. There was punk. There's a lot of lefty stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't that far from the 60s where there was a lot of nostalgia stuff about protests. So I wanted mm. to go to university to get involved in politics and do protesty stuff. You know, that was my my big goal and that's what I did you know and then I, I just because I happened to arrive at a time when the students uh, were um, I mean we gave out at the time we thought the students were very apathetic but mm. really you know they weren't there was first the first year I was there there was a big uh, protest about student fees and there was an occupation where we took over um, some up buildings for two weeks I think yeah um 
which is great fun. And then I remember walking, I've walked on the top of the roof of Trinity, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, to see it from that from that there and got to read all the student records in the records office. Um, and and then the next year it was the Spuck stuff, you know, when the student, when the um, when the Spuck started to take uh, the students' unions to court. So then from then on, I became really involved in the pro-choice movement. And I also became involved in anarchism. Um, the anarchism came from partly, like I said, I went to college looking to join something, to get, get involved. And I'd read, what's it, Homage to Catalonia or Orwell's book, and that really influenced me. And I, there was a real connection between anarchism and the sort of feminism I was reading, which was all about um, consciousness raising, self-empowerment, the anarchism of the DIY culture, the punk ethic, question authority, do it yourself. So it just it was a good fit. I met Andrew Flood. He was already an anarchist. So he kind of introduced me to the anarchist thing. And I was kind of going, actually, I'm already an anarchist. This fits to what, to what I already believe in. Uh, there weren't any other anarchists, as far as we knew, in Ireland. There was no internet. So you were just mm -hmm. getting stuff. I remember a couple of books from Trinity's Library or the, the Well-Fed Cafe. Um, and so we set up an anarchist group, the anarchist communist group, and we produced one paper and we had an open meeting in Trinity and Alan McSimone turned up and we were given a talk about anarchism. And then this bloke who was much older than us started talking about anarchism and went, oh, my God, he's an anarchist. you know." <laughs> so uh, we, we joined the WSM that was already existing. We didn't know it was there before and a couple of other people at the time did. Right. And was that a huge change? Joining the WSM? Yeah. Um, no, because it was quite a small organisation and it was doing what we wanted to do. So, I mean, initially there was an awful lot of, um, and it's what I think a lot of small groups should do and often do do. There was a lot of political discussion and documenting what we actually believed and working out what our share beliefs. We, we, um, uh, we come from a, a tradition called platformism, platformism yeah. uh, which is basically the idea that you have a shared political vision and a shared political tactics. You know, uh, it, it's it's uh, so so we spent a lot of time working out what our shared political vision was um, produ producing paper. I've been looking at them recently uh, to produce newspaper. Initially, like I do remember the very end of using gestetner machines where you just yeah. turn around the things. And then uh, I remember maybe one or two issues where you were, you were doing it um, using cutting up pieces of paper and sticking it in with stick thing. Um, and then we moved then uh, we moved to computers uh, in Trinity. In, I did science in Trinity and first year Apple gave all the first years Max um, and Andrew did science too. So we had Max. So that introduced us to desktop publishing which meant we, from then on, we started doing them in a, you know, on, on computers. Um, and like the WSM did move very early into putting stuff online. And I think probably can thank Apple for that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is true. It, it was it, like, there's quite a bit in the, in the archive, but there's also obviously the WSM's own archive yeah. as well, which is fabulous. And anybody who's interested in this has to look at that archive. Yeah. The, the quality of the material coming out in the, Really, that we didn't know that. That's fascinating to learn. Yeah, yeah. And so, I think we had like one of our missions was to be the memory of the class. So we did try, uh, we, we still do not as much as we 
should, but we tried to, to do proper reportage and any, mm. any events or things that we were going to, who was speaking, what was happening, mm. um, so that there was a record of it. Mm. Um, I think, um, I think in another podcast, I think Brian said organizations are very influenced by their founder members. Mm. Um, and we were very influenced by Alan McSimone, and particularly because he came from the Workers' Party himself. And he had so many crazy stories about politics in the 70s. Mm. He had a very strong commitment to non-sectarianism, um, mm. which I think is something that is, became part of the WSM culture. So we would work with anybody. We wouldn't trust everybody, but we would try and work with everybody. You know, we would try to be non-sectarian. We would try to report things fairly, mm. um, uh, which meant actually some, a lot of times we became sort of the honest broker in, um, in campaigns or stuff because you know we kind of were I mean we're also the honest broker because we're smaller we're not competition you yeah. know but yeah Was that, would that be frustrating I mean this is slightly off the point but do you that's a fascinating point you raised it, it, was that a frustrating place to find yourselves in in a sense you know to be the, well, the group that people trusted but not necessarily the group that was going to be expanding faster and yeah I mean we always wanted to grow you always want to be bigger you want more people and more mm. people you can do more things um mm. We always felt that given our size, we punched above our weight. We had an advantage that it's a small country and we were in the, most of us were in the capital city and you can do a lot with very little people. We also saw ourselves as uh, the thing about being an anarchist in a country where there's no anarchist tradition is you have to kind of work it out as you go along. So in that way, I felt it was a bit of an advantage because it meant, meant us that, you know, we were always, we tried to be innovative. We weren't, we weren't hidebound by what we did in the past. We could change. We did change a lot. We changed strategy a lot and, and, and pitched. Um, but it's true for, for the first decade, there was, you know, about 12 of us, different 12, but, you know, mm. essentially we were a very small group with yeah. a wide periphery. Um, we, like all groups want to join, but that's uh, what, what new members, because you can do more things, but we were also very happy to work with people, mm. you know, and to, uh, a lot of our politics is about building relationships between people and see groups. We kind of see it differently. It's, I think a lot of the, um, the Trotskyist groups or the parliamentary groups, they're in competition with each other over votes, you know, mm. over, uh, Whereas we see the world more as you're bringing different groups together to fight where they can on shared issues and trying to build relationships, because ultimately that builds a stronger movement. It's kind of maybe a more movement approach mm. than an electoral approach. And, and with platformism, my understanding of platformism has always been the platformism is really open to link. It's really what you're describing there to links to unions, working with unions, working in campaigns. I mean, you, you're on your own history of activism here right to the current days is one of you being involved very very heavily inside activity activism yeah and, activism and was important to us because yeah. that's where we raised our own i mean if, to change society you have to have one a vision and two this the skills and capacity to be able to do things to organize so uh, activism was very important for us because that's where we raised our own capacity and that's where we could raise the capacity of other people and other groups so if you know if you're involved in a campaign uh, you weren't just looking for people to join the group afterwards you're hoping that afterwards people involved in the campaign would have the capacity to do stuff themselves without you having to help them it's it's um, building leadership i guess people would call it these days 
um, rather than, um, you know, getting foot soldiers. Did you feel that in a sense was limiting as well for the growth of the organisation or in a way, or, or was it something that slowly but surely moved it on to, to a larger profile? Because it clearly did get bigger. Um, well, the limited, uh, we got bigger, but I, I don't think that was, um, that was also to do with the times, you know. We got bigger around the summit protests when people stopped, young people stopped emigrating, start coming back. And there was this uh, similar politics that was, all over the world you know so that we didn't create that situation you know mm. we were small in the in the 90s when everybody was emigrating you know again yeah. we didn't create that that situation so i think groups there's a lot of post hoc rationality rationalizing when people talk about their own histories i do think there's you have a lot less control over circumstances than than maybe other groups think mm. you do you're you're hostage to fortune uh, was it limiting? There were definitely problems. We have a constant discussion within the organization about prioritizing. What do we prioritize? And in one respect, people would like an organization where you have where we all agree to do the same thing and put all our energy into that. And we did do that with some success with different campaigns. Mm. Um, but the other you know, the side of it is, is we are a voluntary organization, and I think people fight better when they fight. Um, for things that affect them, you know, on their own grounds, you know, yeah. you fight, fight where you are for what you want, you know. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to be moving somebody who has no interest in a particular issue or no way of engaging in a particular issue and say you need to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, we we put a, you know, there's a lot of debate about maybe I think it was one of the maybe the water charges, you know, or the household tax, one of those ones. Um, should all get involved but then you members who are migrants who weren't connected to any community you know and you could send them around to meetings but they felt isolated you know they didn't so it wasn't necessarily a very good fit uh, so I think it's it's a tension you have and you have to try and work out what skills people have and where they can contribute and put it where they're actually going to be benefiting themselves and the organization rather than just having a all go this way yeah but the trouble is you can end up getting spread too widely and you can lose a collective identity if everybody's working on their own thing yeah you know and then that kind of goes well what's the point of being in the organization i'm doing one thing anyway so it it is a tension i don't think it's one we resolved the campaigns that you were initially involved in i mean did you feel that the wsm i'm i was from the outside looking in it seems to be an open to any progressive campaign it was very happy to get involved with did you feel that your concerns were able to be exemplified to be um amplified within the organization in a sense and and, well, and and how did that translate into say your activism in the year when you start once you got comfortable in the organization for want of a better word in the well i guess initially I mean, we did a lot of work on abortion and that was consist- consistent all the way through mm-hmm. um, and that was you know a, an important issue for me um and a lot of the stuff earlier on was anti-clerical. You know, I was worked in the divorce, and uh, we, all, you know, we always went on the gay uh, marches, and yeah. you know, all, all those all those things. And you know, that also reflects an anti-clericalism that is traditionally in anarchism and in Spanish anarchism. So yeah. that way, yes. Um, what other things? Uh, when I was unemployed, unemployed, I was in an unemployed action group. When I joined the workplace. I joined the union and most members did join a union. Mm-hmm. The union work we found difficult to be, uh, to have a coherent 
um, and we still do, um, union activism, as in you can be very active in your own local uh, workplace, but how do you connect together between workplaces? There would be anti-partnership um, campaigns that went for years, but, you know, they didn't work. <laughs> you know, we didn't have the purchase of them. Um, so did I meet my own campaigns? Um, I mean, I did find uh, in the early left when I joined, and this is, there is a particular, there was, and it's still church it's the same. There's a particular image of what a revolutionary is and what a left-wing activist is. And it's a bloke who reads a lot of books, maybe has a beard, you know? And when I started, I started when, you know, you had the groups that around were things like the Irish Workers Group and SWPP and Militant and the Sparts, and they would be arguing about Russia. Was it a degenerate worker state? Was it state capitalism? Mm -hmm. And to me, it felt like football cards. You know, you had, I was, I remember thinking if I could just have a card with my position on it, I could show it and then they could show me their card and then we could move on. You know, it was that kind of, and I find that quite interesting that some of those groups or some of those people are now given out about identity politics because that is identity politics. Mm -hmm. That's your, you know, your mm -hmm. political membership is part of your identity. And that wasn't, uh, although I did end up becoming, doing a PhD and becoming a sociologist, and I do read those books, that wasn't the sort of, that just, it, it just didn't interest me, you know, it still doesn't, I'm more, I'm more of an organizer, I'm more fascinated by organization and how do you build things, how do you connect struggles, than I am about the, you know, the Soviet Union. <laughs> the minutiae of the left experience yeah, across yeah, the decades. Yeah, yeah, and some people like that, and I know, now I see that it's like poetry, some people like some sort of poetry, <laughs> So my good friends like you know French philosophy that's fine by them you know that's a good <laughs> but, way of putting it <laughs> but it does become a problem of that's what your definition of what an activist is um and and I know even recently around the repeal a really good friend and comrades said to me around repeal where's the left and I was kind of going like do you not consider women to be the left you know have you not looked at all the who is making up the abortion rights group just because mm -hmm. they're not in a political party you know that's calls itself left doesn't mean they're not the left you know yeah. and so there is a gendered view about what a militant is in ireland yeah and um, that still exists you know uh, and did i feel that in the organization i mean like on one hand i didn't because of my i think because of my dad because i was very comfortable arguing and mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand i think i did internalize a lot of it um you know i i did things like there was a point in the 90s when I said, I'm just not giving any more talks on women's oppression or mm. feminism because I'm the only one ever given the talks mm. and I'm, I'm bored and fed up with it, you know. So I didn't. I didn't read that stuff. Now, fundamentally, that stuff is actually much more interesting to me mm. because I think it's, it's relevant to my own life. And I think about much more interesting political discussion in that. But I kind of downplayed it. Why did I do that? Because it wasn't seen you know, rhetorically, it was valued within the organization, but all the blokes were kind of going, well, I'm not going to do it. You know? right, and I regretted yeah. it because some of them ended up with pretty poor politics afterwards. And I kind yeah. of go, oh, I should have educated those. <laughs> yeah, because so you're trying to avoid being, in a sense, stereotyped. But, yeah, yeah. But, so, but yeah. you by doing it, you're fitting another stereotype. Yeah. You know, you're, you're doing things... Uh, you're doing things that you think are more acceptable mm. or, you know, just fit the right thing to do. Mm. Yeah. Like I've, I'm always trying to argue that, um, you know, being able to do graphic design is as important to the revolution as being able to read capital. 
Um, but I think that's not widely, you know, fundamentally, there's a lot of people on the left who wouldn't agree with that. You moved, you were studying sociology then subsequent to your time. Yeah, when I left college, I was unemployed. There's no science jobs in Ireland. Mm. And uh, I was just kind of going, I have to retrain because I'm getting to my 30s and I may never, ever work. And Mm. we were like, it was tough before the Celtic Tiger. Everybody was broke. And, you know, so I said I'd go back to college, you know, and I ended up doing sociology because I did stats and science and there was stats and sociology. And then I really enjoyed it. Um, and I decided to do a PhD because I got funding and I thought, sure, I may as well do it. I'm unemployed. I have nothing to lose. Mm. Um, so which actually is a great way to do a PhD because then it's you don't feel you've lost anything, wasted your time. Mm. And surprisingly, I have been employed since I did it and I didn't think I would be to be honest and but then things change and I have it so I just really enjoyed it because I mean a lot of sociology is a broad enough field that you can do what you like yourself um and a lot of it was I mean that it was this stuff that I was also reading anyway as a political activist Mm. I was going to say did you feel it inflected your political worldview well, you can find bits in sociology that you find interesting, you know, so I would be drawn like so I did sociology work. And uh, so that's obviously coming from my politics. Um, and I graduate, you know, I I was interested in um, uh, the Marxist sociologists or, you know, an E.P. Thompson, you know, so mm. I you know, and I still have, you know, you find the people whose voices speak to your interests. You know, so it's broad enough that you can do that. And one thing I didn't do was social movements. Uh-huh. which would be another thing that would be obvious. And um, I'm kind of glad, having looked at the social movement field now, I'm kind of glad because I think, um, because I find it quite dull what I've read in social, uh, my, my, my research partner, David Landy, is a social movement researcher. Mm. And uh, the trouble with social movement research is that it tells you stuff you already know if you're an activist. So it doesn't really add any insight. Um, and I kind of do feel, and I, but I think a lot, I do feel academics should be at the service of the movement. So should be, they should be researching, quite, I mean, Naomi Klein has that sentence, don't do interesting research, do useful research. Mm-hmm. It should be, and how mm-hmm. do you find out what's useful? You should be talking to, you should be either, I mean, ideally you should be directly engaged in activity, which most academics aren't. And if you can't do that, you should be finding a way to get engaged and find out what they need to know mm. and answer. Because they might need to know stuff about, you know, like say the other stuff about housing, mm. you know, that's useful. That's useful research. That And that's, that's um, whereas I don't know how much use we'll get out of social movement stuff. But anyway, I shouldn't be saying that because Dave will be annoyed at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, we, 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 I contradict myself all the time, so I'll change my mind about that later. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Once I've published something myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, being open to new ideas or to old ideas is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of being yeah. on the left, really. Yeah. Placing in this in the context of your activism, uh, you were clearly active right the way through the process of it, of tertiary education i mean obviously you were still completely involved and active in a range of campaigns did you find so you didn't so there's obviously no contradiction between you going through tertiary education and getting yeah i was active. lucky though because it was easier for us then at that time mm. because um because we didn't have as much ongoing assessment and we didn't have exams yeah. at christmas so essentially you just had to work for six weeks 
um, right. before your final exams. And if you work, then you can pass. Um, right. Whereas I think it's much harder now for students yeah. because there is so much more continuous assessment and um, and so many so many of them are working. And I wasn't working at the time. What we would do instead is we go to London during the summers mm. and earn enough money to keep us going during the year you know um so i think it would be harder now for, yeah. for students to do that i mean and a lot of us i mean failed yeah we, a lot of us were very close <laughs> to the end you wanted yeah. to get the the six weeks you know you could you could bet gamble wrong you know <laughs> <laughs> there was one year where like a whole lot of us i probably was the book year actually when i think about it yeah where a whole lot of us ended up doing repeats yeah but really? it was yeah 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 but um but it was easier yeah because it was yeah. a continuous assessment and as long as you did it you could keep it on keep it it's going kind of businessification of third level in a way yeah isn't absolutely it? Yeah, yeah absolutely from the other side and um so i mean you're involved in a, a huge range of campaigns i mean from when you're in trinity you were you're protesting against david irving um Although that, I think, predated your involvement in the WSM. Would that be correct? I can't remember. Um, maybe. Yeah. might have been... I hung around Trinity the year before I went to it, so it could have been that year. And right, that okay. was loads of fun. That was great, because it was huge debate in college and on the Irish Times letters page. Oh, yeah, um, and the that. night of the actual protest, there was an enormous smog in Dublin um, mm. because of the weather conditions and people burned fuel. So mm. the city was like in fog, smog, and people, all people were masked up because they couldn't yeah. breathe. And then, you know, in Trinity with all these dark shadows, you had uh, this huge protest. Um, I think what happened in the end is the security refused to provide security. Mm. Um, so he was pulled and then they went ahead at some point. Yeah. It, yeah, it did, didn't it? Later on, I think yeah. there was some sort of event. Yeah. yeah. I do remember they let him in in the back and I was at the back oh, yeah. um, keeping an eye. And I remember seeing him and like three pissed people walk towards him. He's actually a very tall bloke and I was quite a short woman. <laughs> and I remember going, well, there's no way I can actually stop him. It's just want to know when not to really go in, you know. Yeah. Um, did, but then in the 90s, you were involved in the anti-water um charges campaign weren't you yeah 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 and yeah. how did you find that because i mean in a sense that's um it's more community based yeah I was gonna yeah, say, yeah yeah it was a great campaign and it was very successful and the reason mm. you know that we were it, it was really inspiring um uh, both the scale of it the size of it and you would go out and the irish water would turn off water and then you would turn it on again, you know. Um, so there was a bit of a structural thing that made it quite hard for them to win because it was quite easy for you just to turn the water on again. Mm. Um, so I don't have a huge amount of memories about that. I remember being yeah. out. Oh, the, yeah. I mean, what the strategy was just to uh, um, block up the court system, you know. Mm. So there was too many court cases pending on the water charges of the court system wouldn't work. Yeah. And so I have a lot of memories of being, being outside the courts when, with huge protests with people uh, uh, when people were in court. And that won. I think that's, that strategy did succeed. Mm. Or at least paved the way for the further successes yeah. a decade yeah. and a half later. Yeah. D- d- and I mean, you talked before about the tension in certain a- angles of political activity, but um, say the tension between uh, 
and I think there is a tension sometimes in some left groups in terms of moving into sort of community-based activism, but the WSM seems to have found that quite easy to bridge in a sense, moving from one sort of campaign into another, or, or is that retrospective? Um, part? Did we find it? I mean, it was a community-based campaign. I wasn't necessarily in a community because I was renting, so we were moving house, you know, the way people do if you're renting. Um, but then other members were had you know were owners and had lived in a place for a long time like Gregor Carr and Alan um so they were able to get involved in local campaigns and then I guess we were more assisting and doing the postering and things like that I mean I don't remember any of the details but there was a lot of arguments between the SWP and the militant about policy committees who was going to make a decision who was going to pull the strings um and we were always putting forward it should be a you know grassroots run campaign with delegates and Mm. often we lost those words (laughs) but we made the argument (laughs) but it did work in the end in the sense like obviously it's that message got through yeah i mean our big problem as well i mean i do actually i do remember i mean a big problem would say the way militants used to work is they would say leave it to us, we, you know, we cover this area, which is an area where they had a candidate that they were going to run, we'll organise it. But they didn't have the capacity to organise it. Like this objection that anarchists have is actually quite pragmatic. It's got to do with scaling up organisations and scaling up struggle. And if you want to scale up, you have to get, you know, you don't have enough party members or full-timers to be able to leaflet an entire area or, you know, get, get people engaged and make much more sense to politicise you know, street by street basis and get people in each street distributing the leaflets, you know, you build a stronger organisation. So, yeah, so that was one of the issues we would would have, yeah. And then what about the life of the organisation in that period? Um, Like, did it feel like there was a step change from the early 90s into the late 90s? I mean, mean, obviously, like, as we hit the 2000s and there's uh, international events and, as you say, people staying at home, the Genoa and et cetera. I mean, did, did it feel like something was changing inside? Uh, well, the organisation grew mm. so that, um, um, that, you know, brought challenges, especially if you're an organisation that's trying to do work in a non-hierarchical fashion um, and you don't have any templates to draw on. So you have to spend a lot of time with bureaucracy. Tom Queen used to call me comrade bureaucrat, uh, <laughs> trying to... Um, trying to work out how to do things, you know, how do you have a delicate structure? How do you have branches that each, that can all feed in on decisions? How, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of meetings, you know, mm. um, and, uh, and that, that can lead to frustrations because some people just want to do things and you have different conflicts, people coming for different viewpoints, you know, mm. we'd also be people saying we're trying to look for a structural change to a political difference. You know, is there a political difference here or is it just that, uh, we're not working out the best way to to agree things. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, eventually it all imploded after the crash, you know, and and you know uh, we lost most majority of our membership over a period of time, um, and some of them went off to join other groups, the Workers Party or Sinn Fein. Uh, I think mostly um, yeah. all over the place. Yeah. So yeah, so it was difficult. You know, uh, we managed to grow, but we didn't manage to keep people. Did you find that you were having to develop those things from scratch or were you drawing on the experience of other movements in terms of how no, to we were, we were pretty much or... developing it from scratch. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So we're working out and then trying something and then saying, actually, that doesn't work. Mm. We need to 
to find it in another way. Yeah. I mean, I guess in some sense, it's not rocket science in that we set up a delegate system. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, and you had rotating delegates. But then usually when you have political debates with different delegates, the, the thing you're debating can shift slightly. And then how do you represent your people? You know, so we have to say, actually, you don't have a hard mandate. You've got a flexible mandate. Well, what does a flexible mandate mean? Um, it's not a problem. It's, it's not a new problem. I remember reading in a book, um, called Free Women of Spain about the group Macaras Libras in, Span- mm. in the Spanish Revolution. And they had the exact same issue mm-hmm. um, about, you know, mandates and carrying forward and representing branches. From what you're saying, you're having to start from scratch. And in a society, which, as you said earlier, is there's little or no anarchist tradition in our society. There is a slight syndicalist tradition. Yeah. But that, and I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. Do you feel that that sort of, tradition that was sort of generating pre-1920 and kind of held on a bit. Do you think any echoes of that survived? Well, not for us, not for me. Maybe uh, I didn't know. I didn't really Mm. um, have anywhere to look to, to have a model. Um, Mm. And even internationally, I didn't really know. I mean, a lot of the, there weren't groups. um, There was a line, you know, so we had connections to some of the English groups. Mm. um but not great connections um mm. not 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 uh a sort of difficult relationships mm. and uh then you've got the you know obviously there's a lot more going on in you know france and spain and yeah. latin america yeah. we didn't have the language so you know we couldn't connect yeah. with them, most of us yeah yeah uh, and organizing the north and then chiapas you know we also yeah. inspiration i guess that's where we got it because we worked quite a bit with the irish Mexico support group hmm. um, so we would have got, been following you, that very interesting and got a lot of inspiration. you went there didn't you yeah I did yeah it what was, was that great. like it was it was brilliant I mean it was really amazing um hmm. we we went there um because it was an Irish Mexico um uh, the strategy of the Irish Mexico support group was to um try and have Irish people living in Mexican um communities as peace observers, you know, so, so by their presence, it would prevent the army or whatever to go in. So there was Irish people in one particular one. And uh, so we went to see it, you know, and it was very interesting because you went you went to um, Chappas is absolutely beautiful, but it's a bit like Rossport in that it is in the middle of nowhere. You know, it is really, really isolated. And I remember uh, we were told um, they have, you know, like combi taxis like they do in a lot of, you know, uh, countries where it's a, a large car or a minibus and you know, they were told to get this combi taxi get off at this point at the side of the road middle of nowhere you know so there's all of us sitting there with our rucksacks on in this taxi full of people speaking Spanish and they know what we're there for you know mm. and we're totally paranoid because you don't know who's a, an army supporter or who isn't you mm. know uh, so we're saying nothing and then you stop at the side of the road and then somebody picked us up and brought us to this community and it was it was really like it was fascinating it was a, a community that was um a greenfield site as and it was land that had been impounded and it was uh, two different language groups mm. were living there so two different communities that spoke different language mm. from each other um, there's loads of different Mayan languages uh, the day we arrived, I remember uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle because the police woman 
in who was a community elected official had to put the policeman in the jail because he'd been cut drinking and there was a no drinking thing you know so he was in the he was locked up in, in the room in the jail um and you know it was, it was pretty pretty inspiring you know they all you know all the women had long hair they wore all the the big you know the big skirts and mm. the white tops you know um and it was uh, um you know there was no running water was there i don't know if there was, there was a river there's no toilets there was no electric there was some electricity mm. but it was really minimal like it took us about two hours to boil a pot of water um there was a coca-cola van and sign because coca-cola would donate signs anywhere um and i remember um uh uh you know we didn't speak i think it was tetzel they spoke you know uh, so they would speak spanish to and i didn't speak spanish to the mm. other guy who uh, nick jones i think it was who spoke spanish and um, so they both are very rudimentary spanish which worked well both hands mm. so he was i remember nick saying god i thought my spanish was great and then i discovered neither of us are conjugating the verbs we're speaking only <laughs> and um i remember one guy you know uh explaining to us about you know basically uh, a liberation theology approach to the struggle you know christ the revolutionary and it's in the bible so and, and we went to mass one day which like if you grow up an irish catholic was really strange you know so all the men are on one side all the women are on one side of one community the other community men and women sat together right. kids were running around there's no priest because there's no priest so you had catholicists um they did a ceremony using coca-cola um as a kind of thing but the ceremony was mad because, you know, you had somebody at the top talking, blah, blah, blah. And then people interrupting him and arguing back and kids running around. And then it would segue very slowly into the community meeting about the issues that they had to talk about today. You know, and mm. we were getting translated. So it was just so not not what I grew up with in terms of <laughs> Catholicism. So, yeah, it was a really... It was a great experience to, to be there. It's so beautiful, such a lovely place. Mm. And then, you know, it was interesting because you have realized there's so much connections, although it's very isolated, like the West of Ireland, there's connections with the colonial powers in that men would go to LA, San Francisco, work, and then come back. And there was that, you know, um, wow, connection. Yeah, yeah. D did you sense... Um the shape of participatory politics and, you know, left libertarian kind of politics there. I mean, do you have that sense of that evolving out of that or? Yeah. Yeah. That's where yeah. they were. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's what all the that community meeting was about yeah. and electing your own policeman and making decisions and how you dealt yeah. with particular issues. And in yeah. the sense that was very con self, con I mean, obviously there's a broader political framework there in Mexico and the conflict, well, not conflict, but well, it is a conflict, but you know, yeah. Zapatistas and so on and forth but I mean do you have a sense of like is it almost these are happening in spite of that or is because the safer space has evolved within which they can occur I mean I don't know I don't I honestly don't know I mean it has been explained it has been I, I know they've um, Marcus says that there is an, an pre-existing uh, Mayan culture of mm. self-organization and communities which I guess you do get in small rural communities and mm. and you know that's where where he got he he got his politics from them rather than the other way around um yeah. so yeah so I, I don't know 
yeah sounds fascinating like yeah and- yeah I mean it was a really interesting it's really uh, inspiring experiment it was great to be able to go there and it kind of feels like it was part and parcel of the language of the parts of the left during that period it was sort of you know an iconic signifier of that sort of language yeah and you know and it and if and it's you know it connected well with the summit protests which were all organized on non-hierarchical basis and mm-hmm. they were very interesting as well um i only went to one which was the one in scotland mm. but you know even put aside them as protests as uh as social spaces they were mm. fascinating because you had different groups of people trying to coordinate activities together with okay. involving people in quite a like a difficult space um uh, like when we were the the Scotland G8 summit happened at the same time as the London bombing, right. so you know um, you know that was a lot of debate. You know, a lot of people were from London. You know, so there was a lot of issues. What should we do? You know, who did go? Um, some of the principles there, I thought, I think, are really important. Like the uh, the principle of diversity of tactics, uh, which is that you uh, you allow different groups to do different things and you don't criticize other groups. I think that's a brilliant principle that. <laughs> pretty more people don't take you know take involved you know you don't all have to do the same thing as long as you don't uh by you're doing something you make life more difficult for other people um but yeah i thought it was great i discovered how important toilets were (laughs) when you have lots and lots of people (laughs) really basic stuff how do you feed people and i like that sort of stuff i'm interested in that you know yeah uh, that really basic social organization and did you feel you could bring it back to Dublin, that, in a sense, or back to Ireland more broadly and to the island more broadly? Yeah, and actually, Zainab Tovnisi, if you read her book, Twitter and Tear Gas, she talks a lot mm. in, in one chapter about um, what's important about those those spaces of the sense of community and solidarity that people feel there. And I do think that's important. Um, and that is something that came from those. So from, you know, a part of that was... WSM became interested in, and it's an, it's a it's a of the project of setting up social spaces, which mm. is a tradition among not just anarchists but communist groups in mm. in Italy and France. You know, so we, um, and uh, um, and that is about, and, and you know what, actually, it's something that Larkin did when he was building um, the unions. You know, they would have. Um, picnics and they had bands and they had you know sports day for kids you know it's about building uh, and I was talking to um, Selma James when she came over to the anarchist book fair and she was talking about the same thing when she grew up in New York you know in the 1930s among the communist movement there it's that idea of building up a a community so Mm. you know she uh, you read a lot of accounts at the time and they say well you know I wasn't necessarily a member of the communist party but i was a communist because i was with you know these were my community um, and i think that is an approach to politics that uh, our brand of anarchism is very interested in in developing mm. you know that sense of uh, uh, people belonging together now it's messy and it can be very time consuming which is you know the balance um mm. you have to work it out but i've also had some of the best times of my life i mean i've had genuine fun um, at those protests or in, you know, Shomer Spree yeah. or in the Garden of Delight back in the day. You were, um, I think you were media spokesman for the Dublin Grassroots oh, yeah. Network. Yeah. And the state kind of bit back in 2004, didn't it, with these war yeah. cannons? And, and did you have a feeling 
from your perspective that this was something that was developing and that the response was going to be coming forth, you know, reaction response was forthcoming from them against this over that period? Or it was just, it was, you know, I mean, how, what's your perception of all of that? Uh, oh, it was a crazy time. Um, mm. and, it, and it was super stressful to mm. be involved in it and to be me. me. I'm personally an introvert, so I don't like doing the media stuff. Mm. Um, but uh, I f- was willing to do it because I felt I was in a good place at the time to mm. do it um, in terms of employment uh, and everything. But uh, um, yeah, it was very super stressful, you know, because we didn't know what was going to happen. And we, um, uh, I had um, a tabloid journalist follow me to work and take pictures of me with long lenses. And I was in one of the tabloids saying, because I was lecturing UCD at the time and they had an article saying, teaches our children by day, ferments revolution by night or something like that, you know. And so I had to go into my boss, you know, the head of the department next day and say, I just want to give you the heads up that this is in the newspaper just in case yeah. anything comes down the line. It was fine. It was, it was a sociologist called Tom Inglis. Mm. And he said, actually, I, I, you know, I used to read Freedom Press back in the day and he was very supportive of it. Yeah. But, you know, that was stressful. Um, and on the day of the protests, you know, I had a journalist, um, I do know the stuff that they do, but it's pretty mm. pleasant, you know, so they would you know, they'd be standing in front of me uh, as I was walking down the road, trying to get me to react so that they could have it on camera. There was one point where I had to hide in the toilet, ladies' toilets of a pub to get away from, I think it was a primetime photographer, you know, and we didn't, like, um, um, Dublin felt very scary, uh, you know, on that night, you know, when when we did our our tactical retreat, which we did quite well, but, you know, there was riot police, you know, you'd look down a street and you'd see a whole load of riot police um, mm. in full riot gear. Uh, so, yeah, that was all very creepy. The next day was reclaim the streets and I didn't go because it was just I just I just uh, which is a pity because apparently it was great crack. But I just mm. couldn't uh, be the face anymore and have to deal with the, 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 the media stuff. And, you know, that stuff has an impact on you later on. You know, because say that article uh, in the paper, um, you know, it, 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 you know, it was taking the piss out of the stuff I was teaching in sociology. And a good mm-hmm. few years later, I was at a job interview and I, I took on that. You know, I was de- self-deprecating about my mm-hmm. my work and I suddenly realized I was actually just parroting what I'd read against me. So it does have a negative effect, um, that sort of uh, media stuff. The good thing about it is, though, that we um, there is always a problem in campaigns when you have media spokesperson and that they can become the de facto leadership mm. of the campaign if they yeah. end up speaking uh, out of turn and you know the press always goes to them, or they can cause division if they say something and other people aren't happy. So we had really good preparation for it. Uh, we learned a lot about the way Sinn Fein used to work the media they're very good at it mm. um um so in that way we're really well supported you know do, do you think subsequent to that the state pulled back a bit or do you think it didn't have the same opportunities in a sense to show its teeth i mean uh, i think uh, also our our we fell apart a little bit after that right. because it was sort of a me too scandal attached to some of the events afterwards right. that led to a huge divide within the the groups who are involved and you know a lot of debate and discussion so uh uh 
yeah so we didn't really i don't know how much we capital capitalized on it um it was one of those more moments of exuberance rather than (laughs) participating (laughs) to a long-term building thing sort of an educative moment but not one that carried through for it yeah. massively further yeah and then and of course that's like, what sort of effect it had on other people i mean because we didn't know who was on it on the march who ended up you know it was just randomers turned up on the day so who knows <laughs> what sort of effect it had uh, on those people do, do you think then like because you mentioned it before in respect to the wsm that i mean then you i mean okay that was 2004 but then one hits the um Within the next four years, there's the economic meltdown in a sense, and this seems to have cast a pile then across the 2010s into like actually to the present day in a sense. You know, the pandemic almost feels like yeah. parts of austerity part two, but in a different yeah. kind of a way where it's all yeah. inverted. And yeah, do, do you feel like that that economic collapse to a certain degree cut things across or cut across potential development on the left? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a couple of things that happened. One, uh, you had the economic collapse. And I don't Mm. think people, it's like, um, it's a cliche, but I I think when people have rising expectations, that's when they're willing to do things, not when they're Mm. beat down. Mm. Um, So I think that's true. Uh, I think the left kind of thought this is brilliant. It's really obvious that capitalism is just a a gambling game. Um, We just show it is a gambling game. And people will suddenly get involved. Um, and it didn't happen, you know. And then at the same time, you had the rise of all the various left responses that was a engaged left wing move towards electoralism. Mm. Um, and so if you're frustrated, like say within anarchism, if you're if there's low levels of struggle in your organization that's based on struggle mm. um, and you're fr- frustrated that you haven't had the masses join or get engaged, mm. electoralism gives one thing electoralism does it has a very sustainable way of engaging of being uh, of being involved in politics yeah. you know it, it's a trajectory it's a very obvious trajectory that when i when i say obvious i mean is um it, it's a game you know all politics is a game and this is a game with very fixed rules and you know if you're if you've got a mind you can work out how to how to do it properly you know and it involves it's a way of getting people involved intensely for a short period of time, like six weeks before um, an election. And afterwards, you can take a rest. If you've done badly, you say, we'll do better next time. If you've done well, you say, we'll build on our next thing. You do nothing. And then you've got another six weeks. So it kind of does have its own logic and rhythm, you know, where for us, it was like, what are we going to do now? You know, yeah. <laughs> we have that sort of template. So it's harder. Although the WSM was involved throughout the campaigns of the 2010s as well. So, yeah, 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 you know, we were, I mean, yeah. didn't step yeah. aside. Yeah, no, um, and like, um, uh, like, so, I mean, but some of the campaigns were, in, like, were involved in Chelsea, mm. um, yeah. which was a good campaign, but it was a campaign that was based on Rossport, you know? It was, it, yeah. it, I don't yeah. think, it, like, it wasn't one of those campaigns that structurally was really going to build very much because, I mean, you have the state and the media fervently against it. Mm. So far away, it wasn't open to people to participate. Mm. Um, I I remember being involved in the uh, um, Shannon Airport protests, Mm. which involved a lot of going down to Shannon on a bus on Saturdays, thinking I'm glad when this is over because this is taking up too much time. And the next thing then was Rossport, 
which is even further away. So Rothbard would really, really politicize uh, a certain cohort of people, but I don't think it was ever going to ex expand um, uh, larger. So, uh, but and it, and it took up a huge amount of time and energy. I was in living in Galway at the time, and I, I kind of had the impression it had quite an impact there on the left in terms of yeah, yeah. I guess just maybe I'm accessibility, wrong. Yeah. you know. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't think, yeah, no, I think it did have an impact on the left um, and rhetorically it was really important, but I don't think it was going to be a mass campaign. No. Say the way repeal is, like, mm. you know, it wasn't going to involve people in every parish and street in uh, in Ireland. Mm. Uh, maybe it could have, um, but the strategy of going down to Rossport wasn't ex wasn't expandable. Was yeah, I think you're right. You know? Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, but then sometimes you engage in campaigns because you're you're trying to make a, a it's a political education, you know, and trying to make mm. a political argument about about society, you know. Mm. Um, that raises the question then of with repeal and part of that marriage equality, the WSM. Mm. I presume people would have been involved more on an individual level in those campaigns rather than as an entity. Is the WSM badges, or or maybe I'm completely wrong. So uh, in uh, less so in marriage equality, but in repeal, we were all um, we were involved as individuals, but that was an organisational decision. Yeah, you know that everybody was going to put all eggs in that basket, you know, and mm -hmm. and, uh, and and work on, you know, wherever we were. So you know, involved in setting up groups in our local communities, or which was kind of the repeal strategy. All the groups said they dissolved into together for yes um so we were on board with that we didn't think it was a good idea to say do the rosa thing of having a separate campaign in a way it's a very wsm style campaign the repeal yeah campaign. well it was in certain but I, ways in certain ways but uh, um i i don't think that's complete coincidence because a lot of that the well you know arc was one of the groups that was involved in it and a lot of arc members came from the revolutionary anarchist uh, anarcho-feminist group and a lot of the people in the revolutionary feminist group were um, were close worked would have worked close with Wisdom in uh, you know in in Shelter Sea and uh, mm -hmm. in, in Rossport or some of the ex were members of some of the art people like Ronnie Griffin was a member of the WSM you know mm -hmm. so, so the pilot art arc uh, it's not, it wasn't an, an anarchist organization, but it was definitely informed by anarcho-feminism and people coming from the NGO sector. So it had that politics to it. And um, so that's an extent where I said, you know, WSM doesn't necessarily has an impact, but it's not necessarily, you know, particularly visible. It's it's on mm. the level of ideas. It's all it's on the level of how do you how do you organize? How do you mm. do things? That, that's a win in a way. Really yeah, nice. no, it is a win. It is a win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not looking for glory. It's a win. No, no, of course not. But, <laughs> but then I guess the question is where, I mean, this sort of strays a little bit outside our ambit, but it's like, then where next in a sense for that? And how does one ensure that campaigns have that sense of pluralism and as best? Well, as I mean, possible? I think every campaign, every generation, you just have to make the arguments again. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and so in some generations, it's easier because the arguments are already out there, like in the in the in the, you know, the 200, 2000s, because they were mm. out there. People could draw from from models. It's possibly a little bit different now because of the the, the rise of electoralism. It's a little. Uh, um, mm. But then, you know, um, there's a whole load of women who've been through ARC who've, who've, who assume a particular way of working. 
yeah it's funny i found that interesting in my union work um because unions tend to be very uh oh so old school you know where you have the you know the archaeology like and the secretary and you know and uh and then but i'm coming from tradition where you rotate minutes and you rotate chairs and you know people you delegate you know i mean it's all about delegating and getting different people to do to do that which is what i've tried to do within my own union work which i think has also been successful you know so it's, it's yeah is that difficult to balance within an organization like wsm the 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 sort of egoless um element of of campaigning with other groups but also you know some groups have been accused and probably sometimes justifiably of being a little bit cynical in in party building within a campaign or whatever is that something that's difficult to balance internally that i mean wsm still has an interest in in you know continuing itself and organizing as well yeah yeah we're just not very good at it that's all (laughs) (laughs) you just tend not to ask that's an easy answer (laughs) we we don't ask people to join you know and people tend to join organizations when they're asked to (laughs) so so that's partially partially it you know i don't want a flaw i only raise that as a a thought could that be a flaw (laughs) it's a flaw flaw that we're we're we're, yeah we're we're aware of yeah i mean and part of that is a reaction to the experience of other groups you know so you'd go to meetings and somebody would stand up and say I'm blah 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 I'm in the WSF in the SWP you know or in militant and the line is blah 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 and then they would lecture you for a couple of minutes and everybody in the room would go and go oh, you know and uh, so it's a reaction to that you don't want to be that person mm. uh, so uh, we are we yeah so we're the opposite yeah. mm. but yeah. we should we should ask people to join <laughs> It wouldn't, wouldn't go on this. I mean, if we want members, you know, <laughs> do you, like currently, obviously, with the pandemic, that has suppressed political activity in, well, except on the hard and far right, who seem, but they seem to be less concerned about their personal health and well-being. I, I, would you agree with that analysis? I, I, that's, yeah, that's totally. My perception. For us, yeah. yeah, totally, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I mean. Um, you know, you always think if you had this period of time, it would be brilliant because you could do all the sort of deep thinking and organizational mm. stuff that you never have time to do because you're engaged in too many activities. But that doesn't happen because, to be honest, we're going through a pandemic, you know, yeah. and we're stressed, um, yeah. we're anxious. And, you know, we've had, you know, some of us are grieving and, you mm. know, so it's just it, it had it ha- so, yeah, our 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 we haven't tried to be to be politically active for the last year we've just Mm. been um you know checking in to make sure we're okay kind of rather than doing anything so we do have to work out what we're going to do next and it's a different world um and uh and and of course jigsaw is gone since the pandemic happened yeah that's where we had our office so Mm. we're going to have to try and work out what what the next where to where to next and have you any hints or clues or that no, you want to share with us <laughs> i mean i think we definitely uh we're all very committed to trying to to the social space strategy and trying to yeah. get another social center going we'd yeah. like to do it it's very difficult in our, in dublin because of property anybody has mm. a warehouse or a space in dublin to be willing to, to rent please contact us but uh so that's that's somewhere so that's something um yeah. um um beyond that i'm not really sure um, I mean, WSM has always 
we're like we're always trying to work out what to do next and whether we should even continue you know whether like i see political organization as a tool is it a useful tool or should we be throwing it away and creating something else you know because it does come to a bit where if you've been around an organization you've got a lot of history and baggage that can slow you down you know maybe it'd be better just to create a new thing where people could join with fresh energy and feel a part of creating something new rather than mm. you know joining something that's been around for 25 years or 30 years so mm. i don't know it's all i think it's all on the table whenever we get to meet and discuss face to face ideally i think i am an optimist personally when people yeah. join the wsm i always ask them are you an optimist or a, per, or a pessimist and uh because that does influence your political vision mm. Um, and we've usually had Alan McSimone was a pessimist. Uh, we've had a mix. We've had definitely had a mix mix of people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not just, but I mean, um, uh, I've been in politics for a long time, and the approach has always been that you know it has to be sustainable. You know, you can't mm. uh, you can't do it as a sacrifice on your life you know you have to still live a life you know it has to be something that you can do along with your life and that you get something from you know that and it does I do get it from I enjoy it I get a buzz from it and um, when things work out I get buzz from being in activity I like the 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 comradeship you know um and meeting people and meeting like-minded people and meeting friends from abroad who are in, in other struggles you know and I mean if you don't have it what are you left with? You're left with being cynical and angry, you know, because the world is not a good place, you know, so mm. uh, it's better than that, you know. Yeah, that's, I think that's really true. I mean, that's really the argument for activism. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there is research out there that say activists are happier. Mm. Um, I guess it depends what sort of organization you're in and how you're doing yeah. it. You yeah. know, um, I do think, I, uh, one of the things I've, think um the ways wsm has changed over the years is it's less modeled on the traditional left which really modeled themselves in a work organization mm. you know your revolutionary organization was like your workplace yeah. um, and it's become a, a bit of a um a softer more concerned with each other organization which I like, you know, in terms of self-care. Um, I think that's kind of an emerging trend within workplaces as well. And yeah. within maybe society, it's where the, the discussions are going. You know, so, I mean, because a lot of the work people do can, like particularly Shelter Sea was extremely traumatic. And there's yeah. people who are still um, playing, dealing with that trauma. And the repeal was very traumatic, you know, it's, mm -hmm. only, it's only a couple of years and people are going to be dealing with that trauma for a long time. So I think you have to you have to recognize that we're not robots, you know, we're people. Do you want to talk very briefly about the fact you're archiving material from the repeal campaign? Yeah, I will. Um, I work in the Digital Repository of Ireland and we got funding from the Wellcome Trust mm. to archive material coming from the repeal campaign, which I think is interesting because they're an English organization mm. willing to put money into archiving an Irish social movement on reproductive rights. Mm. Brilliant wouldn't happen in Ireland, you know, you wouldn't get the Irish government. I think it's a really interesting opportunity because there's material, you know, less so if you go back, but this is a campaign that went from 1983 till the referendum, yeah. uh, 35 years of a social movement involving 
various generations of activists uh, and different campaigning at different scales. So you had like the, you know, the political parties, you had the legal campaigns, you had the NGOs, you had the grassroots activism. In that sense, it is a social movement. It's not just one party, it's different parts in society. So I think if it'll just be an incredibly um, unique database you know, even if you think beyond thinking of this particular repeal, if you want to look at social change over time, uh, it'll be it'll be really great. So I'm really hopeful we'll manage to get as much stuff as we can in in that time. And, and are you looking for materials now from people that they might have or, or what we're doing initially? Is, uh, there's an awful lot of research projects going on about repeals. So we're going to try and archive those um you know um you know qualitative interviews we have some archived um uh, based on a project i was involved in so they're there already and then we're working with um the abortion rights campaign terminations for medical reasons the coalition to repeal the eight together for yes and oh and the abortion right say abortion rights campaign yeah, yeah i think did. those four organizations to archive their business records and their material and then once we've done that, then we're going to try and see if we can get other things, you know, other groups or other organizations. It's all digital. Uh, so we'll try and get as much as we can. I mean, I, I, people are suggesting stuff to me that I, I would like to get. And the, the, the funding is just for, you know, really the referendum. But I'd love to try and collect stuff from from the past because, you know, it's all over the place and it's not a huge amount available. Um but there are some, you know, people who would have done interviews that are on tape that like to digitize and get them in so they're available, things yeah. like that. It would be nice to get a really rich collection that's coming from different, different perspectives. At the moment, we have two collections in. Uh, we have the Artists for Repeal, which are based in NCAD, and they put all their material in. And then I've got... Um, I've put in 25 interviews with people who are involved in campaigns organized because I'm obsessed with organization mm. people who are organizers about their experience of organizing and um, so they're in and they're all available uh, most of them are available to anybody who wants to download or listen to them you know it's 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 an interesting point to make that it, that's a that it's a 35 year campaign because I think and not to not to downplay the efforts of a lot of young people who got involved in the couple of years before the referendum but I think it's it's, it's worth remembering that that's uh, that that's the case you know I mean there are it is and it isn't i mean it's sometimes women of my generation said oh I don't remember. we were involved which we were but like i we didn't bring it through to the end you know mm-hmm. we maybe carry the torch but i think respect to the generation of women who are in their 20s and 30s who actually brought it over over the line you know um, and they were able to s- scale it up to an extent that we weren't partially mm-hmm. i think that had to do with social media i think it had to do with mm. you know facebook and uh, and twitter um allowed people to make connections with each other that we didn't have the capacity to do um so there was a bit of that and a bit of that you didn't have immigration anymore so you had more young Mm. people around Mm. Uh, you had the abortion pill which was a game changer so like i'd say Mm. things there's a lot of things that aren't in your control when change happens Mm -hmm. um but they did push it and bring it over the over the line you know and you know i'm very glad i remember when the referendum was called going well brilliant yeah, fuck you know? Another <laughs> you know i mean you're always pushing for a referendum yeah. uh, but you don't necessarily know that you're going to win it when you when they give it to you yeah yeah you can't control things you have to just take it take it when you can you know and do mm. as, as best as you can 
like I don't think politics is like chess you know where you can just mm. I'm a very bad chess player but you know it's not yeah. there aren't pieces you can move around it's chaotic mm-hmm. it, sort of, it was a sort of a team effort in a sense but in a different way it was multi-scalar yeah. I guess that's Would exactly that what I feel I really yeah. feel it was multi-scalar and you're different people working in parallel and some of them are were in conflict over different strategies mm. um mm. um I think, like, I do think the, um, uh, a lot of this, like, I think a lot of the more elite politics, like the, you know, the the legal cases were important or the campaigning, you know, putting pressure on the, on the politicians were important, but that's that um, necessary, but not sufficient. I think they weren't enough on their own. I think what they re- what really was needed to bring it over was the grassroots campaigning. Um, mm. Otherwise, I think like I think the march for appeal was really important, um, and that's actually a strategy I didn't really believe in when they started doing it. Mm. Um, but I think it it was good. And what I think a lot of groups can learn from repeal is the scale of the ambition. Mm. In that uh, the groups who were involved met at some point, facilitated by an international organization, and said to themselves five years we're going to have a referendum what do we need to do it you know and ARC said well we will need money we will need people so let's go and get that you know and that's what they did for years they they built people by having the marches they built the money by doing all the workers beer company fundraising so they had a they had a a war chest you know so um whereas I was involved over years it was much smaller scale it was it was and it was much more defensive you know, it was, you know, putting pickets on clinics or trying to get the number out. It was, it was smaller. Or, get, or even just get information. Just information yeah, getting, in, yeah getting the information out. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think there was, a, I mean, in a way, this sort of like, do you think there was a phase shift then driven in part by social media? Because it seems well, to me... I think what social media did is it allowed you to scale up. Right. Uh, Zainab Tufnissi has written about that as well. It allows you to scale up really quickly. Mm. So you can, um, that, you know, webpage, unlike Youth Defence, I Trust Women, you know, that had a huge number of people on it very quickly when the Youth Defence posters went up. Mm. Whereas like before, what were we doing? We're putting up posters on on streets in Dublin. They were getting ripped down. So, you you know, you're having a meeting and maybe you'd get 100 and that was a lot, you know. Mm. So you're talking to 100 people, whereas with Twitter or Facebook, you talk to a lot more people. Um, and you can also make connections. You're not alone, you know. So the, the repeal campaign was genuine. Like there's always a tension between campaigning in Dublin and the rest of the country, which the rest of the country will tell you about, mm. you know. And I think um, the repeal campaign, uh, or particularly the arc end of it, was more genuinely uh, national rather than just Dublin. But that's because they did things that people are, we're all doing now. They were using teleconferencing. They were having meetings online. Mm-hmm. And uh, they weren't expecting people to be always driving up from Cork or Galway. Mm. So people are less exhausted. They have more energy. They're more able to do stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And more yeah. to be engaged in the more decision. Engaged, yeah. yeah. That's really, yeah. That's, it's like you say about organisation, being obsessed by organisation. But it really <laughs> is key in some ways, isn't it? It is, yeah, because it's the, it's your engine, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's what drives you forward, so you want a good one. So there's a lot of lessons there to take away. I think people on the left really should be examining this and thinking and going through it. And Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that was, you know, it was a very interesting coalition of different, of 
three organizations that represented different sectors in society. You know, there was conflicts and it was, there was conflicts between those groups. One, one the, my project was interested that the, uh, the sociology interviews I did, what really interested us was uh, there was conflict between those groups, but you didn't hear about it. So it was that kind of diversity of tactics principle, while the the anti side was really divided, and that was the narrative. The narrative of the, this of the the pro choice wasn't that it was divided; it was maybe chaotic, and uh, and that was, I think, sexist. You know, not understanding the organizational model. Mm. But it wasn't that it was divided, even though you know there were conflicts. Um, so I think the uh, at a certain level you build capacity and then you have to work out how to work in alliances. You have to work with other people, and that's what they managed to do. That sort of in a way sums up, like it seems to me, the WSM side as well, and this sense you have to work with people, you have to to get to move things forward, you have to engage. Yeah, yeah, it's about yeah building capacity. Um, I mean, it's also yeah, it's all about having a vision. I think that's lacking mm. a bit in today's politics. Having uh, there's a lot of dystopian visions out there about how you know, in terms of the environment and you know, far right politics. Mm. Uh, you also need to have a positive vision of what the world is that needs to be a bit more ambitious than what's being articulated a lot, mm. and and a belief that it's possible. There's a great mm. book. It's called The Romance of American Communism. Have you read that? It's an oral no. history. Um, and it's um, it's either the tragedy or the romance. I think it's the romance. And it's, uh, and it's about American communists, 30s, mm. 40s, 50s. Um, what those people had is they had a, a belief in the future, you mm. know, a belief that the, it was possible, another world was actually possible if you put in the effort. And I think that that is kind of lacking this idea mm. that there is a, a an alternative that's worth putting in effort to. Listen, thank you so much, Aileen. It's been really thought-provoking. Absolutely, thank you very much. Thank you.